This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We promised you on last week's show we'd be speaking this week with our good friend James DiEugenio. We will, in fact, be doing that in our second segment today. But I'm pleased to announce here at the top of the program that uh, Mr. DiEugenio has encountered some very good news of late. He has worked with movie director Oliver Stone to produce a documentary about the JFK assassination. Oliver Stone had the goal all along for the past couple decades of, of updating his legendary 1991 movie, backing it up with um, facts and, and, and eyewitness testimony that supports uh, what he did with that movie of his, which, which in the opinion of Radio Parallax should have won the Oscar that year. At any rate, Mr. Diogenio wrote a lot of the, I guess you'd say, script, for what will be this documentary. Stone produced it. And uh, some people that we know were interviewed for it. It has been purchased by a television network, and when we find out when it's going to be airing, we will let you know. Anyway, for me, that makes our discussion with uh, Jim in our second segment today just that much more relevant and interesting. I'm also pleased to report some positive feedback on our interview with 105-year-old John Lissack on last week's show. Who knows? We may have him on again. We, we got nowhere near uh, uh, emptying his repository of great stories over a long lifetime. Somebody else we may want to get in this program would be Mo Rocca, the comedian who is probably best known from as being a panelist on... NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's got a new book out about obituaries. I kind of suspect it's you know, likely to be good. And if it is, we will do, make every effort to bring him on this show. Which we are going to start, oddly enough, with three separate obituaries. Starting with Dr. Robert McClelland. McClellan, for many decades, was a professor of surgery at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, and as The Economist magazine notes, around 1230 on November 22, 1963, he was showing residents a film on how to repair a hiatus hernia. A knock came at the door, and he and a colleague were called away to the emergency room. They half-grumbled on the way down. They were often called out to situations described as terrible to find out they really weren't that bad. But this one was. Noted The Economist, the elevator doors opened on a crowd of men in dark suits and hats, shoulder to shoulder. McClellan saw Jackie Kennedy sitting on a folding chair in bloody clothing, and next, along in Trauma Room 1, President Kennedy himself, lying on a cart with the operating light full on him, his head a mass of blood and blood clots, his face cyanotic and swollen. He had been shot as his motorcade drove through Dallas. For a moment, Dr. McClellan stood dumbfounded. These wounds were surely mortal. But he put on his surgical gloves, determined, like his colleagues, to make all possible attempts to revive him. That was his job. I was struck in reading this that it took an obituary to reveal that McClellan surely realized that the wounds to the president were fatal. I think everyone that entered the ER and got a good look at the wound 
also realized that there was no possibility of surviving such a grave wound, yet they all did what they could, which, as it would turn out, was far from enough. Two days later, McClellan saw on television that Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused presidential assassin, had himself been shot. He rushed down to Parkland to see what he could do. According to The Economist, McClellan thought this wound, too, was fatal. But I would note that in conversations I had with Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who was at that time a surgical resident and attended both JFK and was in on the surgery on Oswald, that he might have made it with modern surgical procedures. But they just weren't quite as knowledgeable back in 1963. The obituary in The Economist mentioned that Dr. McClellan, throughout his long distinguished career as a surgeon, had no use for conspiracy theorists in the JFK case. And I'm here to tell you that The Economist got that one wrong. McClellan came to believe later in life that the wounds that he witnessed surely came from a frontal assassin. I'm simplifying that statement, but I don't think oversimplifying it. I think I'll have more to say about all of that sometime in December. I am planning to join Dr. Gary Aguilar and going down to Dallas for one of the annual conferences that takes place concerning our late 35th president. It's funny how when you know a story pretty well, you can, you know, you can even reach out and correct The Economist, a distinguished publication, when they get something wrong. I'm sorry to say that I cannot do that as regards another obituary in The Economist, that of Shuping Wang. I, in fact, knew nothing about Dr. Wang while she was alive, but I was quite intrigued to read about the things she did accomplish. Dr. Wang worked in a blood bank in Henan province in China. She began back in 1991. The Chinese government had uh, set up a program to build up their supply of blood and plasma, presumably so that tainted blood would not be brought in from abroad. Back in 1991, Dr. Wang's clinic opened up and had good equipment. Rules were being followed. But, noted The Economist, blood collection stations are popping up in Henan like mushrooms, and procedures in some were shocking. There were, for example, no preliminary blood tests for donors, although many were coming back several times a week. Tubing, syringes, centrifuge were sterilized only once a day. Blood from several donors, once the plasma had been extracted, was mixed in tubes before it was re-injected. Even in her own clinic, nurses messed up going too fast. At medical school in Beijing in 1988, Dr. Wang had taken a course in field epidemiology run by America's Centers for Disease Control. She knew the dangers of tainted blood by heart. By taking random samples from 64 donors in 1992, she found a hepatitis C infection rate of 14%. She reported this back to local medical officers as well as the Ministry of Health in Beijing. She wanted all deficient blood stations cleaned up or closed. Staff should be trained medically and as important, morally. For blood collection, far from being sacred and glorious, as the government claimed, was just a money machine. Not least for local medical and government officials who sold the plasma to pharma companies. They had no interest in monitoring for disease or bad practices, saying it was too costly. <laughs> yeah, like, cleaning, like, like fighting global warming. Well, it's just, just too costly. Dr. Wang got kicked out of her clinic for her trouble. Dr. Wang used her own savings to buy testing kits and set up a testing center of her own. 
She knew that if hepatitis C was being transmitted, then HIV, leading to AIDS, was clearly coming too. Here, though, noted the economist, she could make no headway. At least when it came to hepatitis, the central government introduced screening for all donors in July of 1993. But HIV, which she found first in early 1995, was different. This was seen as a Western infection, a foreign disease that could not be admitted to. And here she was, a young woman whose father had fought with the nationalist forces against Mao Zedong, a spy's daughter, expelled from school, reporting an HIV infection rate in 1995 of 13%. Worse than gathering the data, she had taken them to Beijing, when officials both there and in Henan wanted them well hidden. Luckily, Dr. Wang found her way to Beijing and the Institute for Virology at the National Academy of Sciences, where she was treated well. And evidently, in no small part due to her efforts, the central government slowly began to own up to HIV and AIDS. Her data gathering became central to the Chinese government's effort to fight HIV. Despite all the good work that Dr. Wang did, what she uncovered was not, well, it just wasn't warmly received by the Chinese central government. Noted The Economist, whenever her name was publicly attached to HIV-AIDS in China, as, in fact, a play based on her career is being staged in London this autumn, Chinese state security would begin to pester her. Anyway, fascinating story. We'd like to know more about that play that's being staged in the UK about Dr. Wang, and we'll have to see what we may learn about it. If any of you are planning to visit London in the near future, (laughs) please check it out and let us know. And uh, they do say that deaths seem to come in threes, which I think is just nonsense. But but we're going to do a third obituary, at least on today's radio program. So I guess to, for our purposes, it's true. And for this one, Mr. Merlin, we're going to need a little bit of music. And I remember hearing Mick Martin. Nick Barton Blues Party playing Crossroads on his program and then mentioning that it was that it was written by Robert Johnson, an almost mythical figure in music. And you know, the story of Robert Johnson is one we should probably devote a segment to in some future program. Very interesting, interesting figure. We also think about getting Mick Martin back on the program. Mick Mick Martin is always an interesting interview. What I'm leading up to with Crossroads, with or without Robert Johnson, is that wonderful Cream version we all love so much. In this particular instance, the live version from Wheels of Fire, featuring the late Ginger Baker on drums. Sad to note that Jack Bruce left us, I guess it was last year, leaving only Eric Clapton of that illustrious trio. And uh, although obituaries are seldom amusing, sometimes they are, well, sometimes they definitely are, because Ginger Baker's is, to some degree anyway, to quote from what appeared in The Week magazine, Ginger Baker's personality was explosive as his drumming. Considered the finest stick man of his era, Baker joined guitarist Eric Clapton and bassist Jack Bruce in 1966 to form rock's first supergroup, Cream. Blending blues and psychedelic sounds on hit singles such as Sunshine of Your Love and White Room, the British trio practically invented heavy rock. And Baker, behind two bass drums so he could play with both feet, plus snares, tom-toms, and up to nine cymbals, became the first drummer outside of jazz to be regarded as a virtuoso. His wild, formidable technique would inspire generations of rock drummers. 
and his wild lifestyle <laughs> would set the template for rock and roll hell-raising. Baker bedded groupies, attacked his bandmates. He once pulled a knife on Jack Bruce on stage because he thought the bassist was playing too loud during his drum solo. And there was the heroin, which Baker did quit. Well, he quit it at least 29 times. Said Baker, I was reported dead several times, including once when I was driving a Shelby Cobra with three tasty chicks, and the radio station announced I'd been found dead in my hotel room from a heroin overdose. Baker took up drumming as a teenager and became a mainstay on the London jazz scene where he learned to sight-read music, play complex time signatures, and, of course, shoot heroin. When Clapton, Baker, and Bruce came together, they named their band Cream because they considered themselves three of the best players in the British rock scene, and they surely were. Noted the New York Times, the group was a sensation, selling 35 million records in two years. But animosity between Baker and Bruce led Cream to disband in 1968 at the height of its success. Ginger Baker joined Clapton and traffic keyboardist Steve Winwood in another supergroup, Blind Faith, the following year. But that band folded after just one LP, partly because Baker's drug problems were rubbing off on Clapton. Noted the Wall Street Journal from the 1970s on, Baker was even more unpredictable. He moved to Nigeria, where he recorded with Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti. He took up polo and divorced his first wife, Liz Fitch, after she caught him sleeping with the friend of their teenage daughter. Liz later said, If a plane went down and there was one survivor, it would be Ginger. The devil takes care of his own. Apparently seeking escape from his drug and financial worries, in 1982, Baker exiled himself to southern Italy, where, it's reported, he toiled on an olive farm. In 2005, the Cream reunion tour boosted his fortunes. I remember watching a video a decade or so ago of, of that reunion tour, and boy, the guy still had it. Unfortunately, Baker blew the money that he earned on that reunion tour on, are you ready for this? Polo ponies in South Africa. Reportedly, his only regret was that he'd be remembered as a rock, not a jazz drummer. Baker said, I started off as a jazz player, and I don't think I played anything else. Mr. Miller informs me that there is a, uh, a Netflix documentary on Ginger Baker that's uh, reportedly very good. What's it called? I believe it's called Beware Of or Beware Mr. Baker. Might be worth checking out. Mr. Mellon tells me that in that documentary, apparently Baker takes a cane to the documentarian. Hmm. This is piquing my interest. All right, let's see if we can't jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. good week last week for forgiveness with the news that a man who sexually assaulted one of the bridesmaids for his imminent wedding and was caught in the act by his fiancée was forgiven by his wife-to-be and the marriage went ahead. Evidently, Daniel Carney's misbehavior began after a day of heavy drinking while rafting down the Delaware River. Evidently, prosecutors are still looking into the whole matter. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Mohandas Gandhi, whose ashes were stolen from a memorial in India on what would have been his 150th birthday. Indian police say the thief objected to Gandhi's advocacy of Hindu-Muslim unity. 
and thus he may be charged with behavior prejudicial to national integration. I don't know, that seems to be quite a theme over in India under the BJP and Prime Minister Modi. Anyway, it sounds like they caught the guy and they've got the ashes, so I, I, guess, I guess it's okay. And it was an ugly week for journalism, at least journalism in America, last week, with the news that the Department of Homeland Security is investigating a claim that a customs officer held a journalist's passport until he admitted writing, quote, propaganda, unquote. Ben Watson, an editor at Defense One, says a customs officer at Dulles International repeatedly asked if his job as a journalist was to write propaganda. Watson did not get his passport back until he replied, for the sake of expediting this conversation, yes. All right, we need to do a little bit of follow-up. We reported on last week's program that a new study is showing that um, red meat and processed meat may not be that bad. Well, more, more properly, after studying more than 130 studies covering 4 million participants, the International Panel of Researchers at Dalhousie University in Canada concluded that there was only weak, low-quality evidence linking red meat consumption with disease and early death. What we did not know in reporting this was that apparently this investigation did have some links to the food industry. Anyway, nobody is saying you should go out and start scarfing up more processed and red meat than you already are. Continue. This does point to a continuing problem in the field of medicine about just being able to make solid recommendations as to what we should or should not be eating. One would think that by now we would have this dialed in, but we do not. A little bit of follow-up we should do is on the nation of Iraq. Remember them? We used to talk about Iraq quite a bit on this show. The Bush-Cheney administration said we had to go in there and invade that country to depose the terrible dictator Saddam Hussein, a guy we put in power, but, but let's not go there again. Once we liberated the nation of Iraq from this oppressive tyrant, so the argument went, democracy would flourish. Well, here in 2019, we find instead that more than 100 people have been killed and 6,000 others wounded in a bloody crackdown by Iraqi security forces on anti-government demonstrations. Peaceful protests erupted around Baghdad and southern cities last week, with demonstrators denouncing corruption and joblessness in their war-ravaged yet oil-rich country. The military responded with live fire, and protesters in turn began attacking security forces. The military acknowledged this week that it had used excessive force and vowed to punish those responsible. Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi has promised to boost stipends for the unemployed and create more jobs, but few outside experts but few outside experts believe the government will carry out any genuine reforms. Speaking of lack of reforms, it's pretty clear that Mohammed bin Salman, the heir to the throne of Saudi Arabia, has gotten away with murder. One year ago, Jamal Khashoggi was savagely murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. President Trump was a great help to uh, the crown prince, whitewashing the crime. In doing so, defying the findings of U.S. intelligence and U.N. investigators that MBS likely gave the order for Khashoggi's elimination. Trump augmented his position, we will remind you, by noting that the Saudis buy a lot of American weapons, and they pay cash. Jonas Shep, writing in nymag.com, notes that they also spend a lot of money at his hotels and buy his condos. In fact, it should be noted that 
The House Oversight Committee is investigating allegations that a foreign government and a trade association booked large blocks of rooms at President Trump's hotels without actually using them. Said committee member Jerry Conley, Democrat from Virginia, we're looking at near raw bribery. It's an obvious attempt to curry favor with him. Now, Representative Conley, don't be hasty. And uh, here at Radio Parallax, we have taken the position editorially that there is, in fact, something to Russiagate. And I don't think the interplay between Russia and Ukraine and how the U.S. Uh, has played ball with both over the last couple decades it has been explained well enough. I would note that the current edition of The Economist does give a review of things Ukrainian. And it's so good that I think I will uh, read it on next week's program. We're just a bit pressed for time today. But I do want to quote from the New York Times about this startling piece of news they've written about. According to the Times, a top-secret Russian intelligence unit has been waging a decade-long effort to destabilize Europe, plotting coups and conducting assassination attempts across the continent. Noted the Times, the covert outfit known as Unit 29155 was discovered only recently by Western officials and has been linked to numerous operations. Its officers were involved in a failed plot to kill Montenegro's prime minister in 2016 and in repeated attempted hits on Bulgarian arms dealer Emilan Gebrev. The unit also conducted the 2018 poisoning of Russian double agent Sergei Skirpal in southern England. One of two Russian officers indicted in the UK over that attack, Colonel Anatoly Chapiga, was photographed with Unit 29155's commander, Major General Andrei Averyanov, at the 2017 wedding of Averyanov's daughter, no less. Retired U.S. military intelligence officer Peter Zwakis said, I think we've forgotten how organically ruthless the Russians could be. All right, let's talk about some ruthlessness that's a little bit closer to home, like Silicon Valley. To quote from an article by Faiz Sadiqi in the Washington Post, Silicon Valley pioneered self-driving cars, but some of its tech-savvy residents don't want them tested in their neighborhoods. Dateline Sunnyvale, California. Karen Brenchley is a computer scientist with expertise in training artificial intelligence, but this longtime Silicon Valley resident has pangs of anxiety whenever she sees Waymo self-driving cars in the streets near her home. The problem isn't that the former product manager who's worked for Microsoft and Hewlett-Packard doesn't understand the technology, it's that she does, and she knows how flawed nascent technology can be. I'm not skeptical long-term, says Benchley, who's lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years. I don't want to be the guinea pig. I don't want my husband to be the guinea pig. She, in fact, has asked her husband, an award-winning science fiction writer who doesn't drive, to wear a shiny vest while cycling to ensure that the driverless cars will spot him in a rush of activity. Noted Siddiqui, Brenchley and the others who live among the world's technology giants represents a surprising Silicon Valley paradox. Residents believe in the power of technology to change the world for the better, but they are skeptical of the role it might play in their daily lives. article has a surprising stat buried in it that uh, California has awarded permits to 63 different companies to test self-driving vehicles on state roads. All these techies believe that if they can just get enough miles under their belt, that these cars will know how to drive under complex traffic situations. 
They also admit that while they're learning, the cars are going to kill some people. John Joss, age 85 and a magazine writer, notes that I have met, dealt with, interviewed, and written about geeks for the past 30 or 40 years. While they understand the tech they're working on, it doesn't always translate to a broader understanding of potential impact. Others in Silicon Valley see the testing as a nakedly self-interested push for profit, an arms race to launch the first driverless taxi service and reap the profits that come from being unburdened of having to actually pay humans. But don't worry, Silicon Valley promises us that they're going to reform all these problems that we've been hearing about lately. But wait, according to Casey Tolan writing in the Bay Area News Group, a controversial new ad from President Donald Trump is the latest example of how Facebook has become the Wild West of political advertising. Facebook is refusing to take down a Trump ad that includes claims that multiple fact-checkers have declared false, and at least one major cable channel has declined to run, sparking a debate over online misinformation and freedom of speech. Trump's ad, which hits back at Democrats calling for presidential impeachment over his dealings with Ukraine, declares that former Vice President Joe Biden, quote, promised Ukraine $1 billion if they fired the prosecutor investigating his son's company, end quote. Notes the piece. There is no evidence Biden pressured Ukraine to remove the prosecutor in question to help his son. Yet, since it went online late last month, the ad has been viewed 2 million to 6 million times, according to Facebook's database. Anyway, I'm glad to see the East Bay News Group uh, looking into this. They tend to be uh, very docile and servile when it comes to the tech industry. By the way, their Sunday paper, in this case the East Bay Times, I noticed had a real estate section that was 34 pages long in the aggregate for Sunday, whereas the actual paper itself in its entirety on its Monday edition only had 28 pages. Do you think the way this affordable housing is getting covered in the Bay Area may have something to do with financial interests? Just wondering aloud. I was also puzzled by a piece in the East Bay Times noting that Oakland, San Francisco, and San Jose are among the most ethnically diverse U.S. cities. Read a headline like that from a piece by Karen D'Souza and you think, boy, things in the Bay Area are really getting, gosh, diverse. But I would note from direct personal observation and our recent talk with my former high school teacher, Mark Mattingly, that the school district I attended as a boy, which used to be highly racially diverse, now has a makeup consisting of 90 to 95 percent Indian or Chinese American students. I'd have to say if you're 90 to 95 something or some two things, well, you're not as diverse as you might be. If diversity is desirable, and I think we all probably agree that it is, well, then this is not desirable. And I have so much more I want to say about the tech industry, but it looks like we're up against it on time for this segment, so we'll postpone that till next week, and there's plenty of ammo in the box. Oh, I'm I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm not referring to any actual ammunition. Anyway, we like to uh, take the, uh, the mickey, I guess they say in the UK, take the mickey out of a lot of politicians in this country and a lot of other countries. And I guess uh, we're going to close this segment with a, uh, with a pot shot at a South Korean mayor. The story is this. Apparently, Mayor Lee Dong-jin was 
part of a program where locals were going to go down to the beach and clean up garbage. You know it. It turns out that the beach in question was apparently pretty clean. So the mayor thought up a solution, which consisted of ordering a ton of garbage be carted out onto the beach and dumped so that the volunteers would have something to clean up. The mayor subsequently apologized for the massive dumping scheme and said he was only trying to raise awareness about the seriousness of coastal waste. Reportedly, more than 600 people bagged up the trash, unaware it had previously been collected from other South Korean beaches before it was intentionally scattered anew. And I know that our program does get heard in the capital of Sacramento, but I sure do hope that with that last item, I haven't given anybody any bright ideas. Let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to speak with investigative journalist James Eugenio about some interesting facts he has recently stumbled upon, which we should stumble upon with him.